Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball, the podcast where there is no offseason, and we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I am recording this in the mobile Sully Baseball studio, and I am in a car currently going between San Jose, California, and Pasadena, California, going from the place where the Oakland A's should be playing right to the historic Rose Bowl. You know, I I don't think you realize, maybe some of you don't realize this, but most of California is flat farmland. I've been driving on the 5, or I've been in a car on the 5, heading south. And, you know, when you're driving, once you pass Gilroy and all the garlic there, and you hit the, you know, between that and the grapevine, which is the windy road which leads over the hills and takes you down to Los Angeles, basically. It is, the rest of the state is basically a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Remember Hanna-Barbera cartoons when someone would walk would be the same background they would just repeat over and over again because it was lazy and cheap and Hanna-Barbera basically took the artistry out of cartoon making and made it a factory of cheap BS, terrible shows that we watched because there was nothing else on. Well, that's what the, 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 (laughs) the drive from basically from Gilroy to the the grapevine is just flat farmlands and that's what you know most of this state looks like that I mean you pictured your mind California chances are you're picturing Malibu you know or or you're picturing Beverly Hills or maybe you're picturing you know the the streetcars of San Francisco or the the high-tech world of the Silicon Valley. Most of it's avocado farmers. And and that's what, I mean, most of the state is that. And it's funny that it is a, there's a lot of baseball in this state. We have a league. There's the California League. And a lot of the, the, the smaller cities, obviously the big cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles and San Diego... And yes, Oakland and Anaheim all have their own teams, major league teams. But the Stocktons and the Bakerfields and the the San Jose's and the uh, San Bernardinos of the world all have their own minor league teams as well. But it's interesting that the California League had to fold two of their teams this last season that became part of the Carolina League. That there's you know, there's so many old rickety stadiums here in California that the the vaunted California League is is having trouble staying on its feet. It's fine, interesting there, and, and and of course we need to have a new ballpark in Oakland. There's a lot of money in this state, a lot of valuable real estate, a lot of companies that are dripping in dough, and most of the state looks like this. And as I'm driving. And I'm gonna be, you know, I'm gonna be in my car for a bunch of hours here. The same time, amongst everything else, to be in my thoughts, to listen to a few things. But now I'm gonna share some time with you all because, well, do you know what? There's some thoughts to be had. Now, I I got a a, a tweet from one of my really one of my best fans, and I you know look at. Don't take offense that I said one of my best fans, but this guy, Christopher Austin, who's on, uh, I forget his Twitter handle, you forget, forgive me, I, I'm, I'm driving. And, and keep in mind, you know, I'm going to be doing this from memory, from the mobile Sully Baseball studio, but Christopher Austin's a really, really uh, devoted fan of the, the Daily Podcast, when it was, when this was a daily show, uh, wrote me some really uh, nice tweets when uh, I was ending the Daily Show, but, you know, I'm still here, still here, Mr. Austin, we're still doing Sully Baseball, it's just a different format now, uh, and I hope you're still enjoying it, and he wrote to me, he wanted my thoughts 
on the new Brave Stadium. And, I, you know, I watched part of a game that was there. It was a game it was a walk-off win for Atlanta. Atlanta, it's funny. It Doesn't it seem like every team in baseball is 7-8 right now? I'm about to say they got off to a hot start, but I think they have a losing record now. It just I think the entire league is seven and eight. I even look it up and down and say, yeah, they're, you know, they've gone off to a fast start, but now they're seven and eight. I don't think anyone has a winning record. Sally, someone, yes, I know. And obviously there are some teams that have winning records. It just seems like every time I look at the standings, everyone's like seven and eight. I don't know why just struck me as odd. So just a couple weeks in the season, and, you know, I mean, the Diamondbacks and the Rockies are still in first place. It's a three-way tie in the American League. I mean, like, East, you know, there, there, there's no way to judge anything yet. Uh, but, the, you know, I saw a couple of clips from SunTrust Park. Is it SunTrust Park, Stadium, or Field? Let's call it Park. Let's split the difference between Field and Stadium and call it Park. My cousin Kathy took her kids there. My cousin Kathy lives in uh, Atlanta, or in the suburbs of Atlanta, which is where the stadium is. And I've been to the suburbs of Atlanta. I recorded a podcast from the suburbs of Atlanta uh, because of, uh, you know, my work took me out there, and I figured no better place to talk about it. Now, it looks like a nice enough stadium. It's a nice stadium. It looks like a nice enough stadium. Okay? But I have a hard time watching the game there on TV and feeling like a new experience was being had. You know, when, most of the time when you judge a new stadium, what do you think of the new stadium? You're comparing it to the previous stadium. You're comparing what the ballpark was to the new place. Now, there are some times you've gone from a nice park to another nice park. An example of that would be Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. Was a, I've been to Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. It was a great stadium. It, you know, it was a lot of history there. It, you know, it, felt, it was a part of the neighborhood. There was a, it was a really good, solid baseball stadium. But Camden Yards became this great new beacon of what a ballpark should be. I've been to many, many games at Candlestick Park. It stunk. You know, it, I mean, there were I had great memories going to games there, but the stadium itself was terrible. AT&T Park is 180 degrees. And I think even literally, because it got that cold in Candlestick Park, that if you raise the temperature by 180 degrees, ah, it's probably about a nice 70 degrees there. That's how cold Candlestick was. But it was just a, it's a completely, uh, a completely opposite of the experience of going to a game at Candlestick was a game going at, at AT&T Park, which is in the middle of the city, has a great tradition with the, with the kayakers coming up to, you know, into McCovey Cove. All the seats are great. The creature comforts are great. It's convenient to get there. It's everything that Candlestick wasn't. So when you make the comparison from, okay, this is what an experience of Candlestick as opposed to AT&T, even on television, visually, the experience of watching the game at Candlestick, which was big, ugly, seats folded up, you know, it, you know, it was, it, it was weird that you had the bleachers jutting out and there were empty seats behind it. Just aesthetically, it was an unpleasant experience watching the game there. Now, the Braves had a nice stadium. The Braves had Turner Field. And I've been to Turner Field. One of the best baseball experiences of my life was going to a game in uh, 1998 between the Phillies and the Braves where I saw Greg Maddox and Kurt Schilling duel in a game that was less than two hours old. It was a great, great ball game that I went to with these two ace pitchers 
basically throwing BBs at the plate. It was fantastic. And Turner Field was a really good ballpark. I, I enjoyed going to the game there. And there was a sense of, there were several pieces of history that you had there. First of all, that was what was left over from the Centennial Olympic Game Stadium. The Centennial Olympics, the 100th anniversary of the modern Olympics, naturally took place in Atlanta because why not? When the first Olympics took place, in, or the first modern Olympics took place in 1896 in Athens, I think Atlanta was still burnt. And then they built the stadium where about three quarters of it was temporary. They knocked down the temporary parts of it and closed it and became Turner Field. And the whole idea, supposedly, of doing the Olympics is to have give the city exposure and to create all new brand freaking new infrastructure. And we're learning more and more that that's a load of crap. But it also had the spot next to it, which was the site of Fulton County Stadium, which they had the outline. They had the outline of the outfield. They had the outline of where the, the infield was. They had the spot, the wall, which was the part of the wall that the ball cleared for Henry Aaron's 715th home run, the greatest moment in the history of Atlanta sports. And all the great things that took place at Fulton County Stadium, including the three greatest moments in Atlanta sports, you could make the argument, were uh, Henry Aaron's 715th home run, Francisco Cabrera's pennant-winning hit, and the final out of the 1995 World Series. All took place there. Boom, schnock. And so while you had this new stadium with all the creature comforts, you had the, the place that reminded you of all the, the wonderful events that took place there. And Turner Field opened up in 1997. That's only 20 years ago. You know, these... <sighs> I, you know, I understand the need for, for all the modern amenities and everything like that, but this is a post-Camden Yard stadium. And so when I watched the game on television, it was the same experience at SunTrust Park as it was for Turner Field, for me. You know, when you see a new ballpark, the difference between Joe Robbie Stadium and the crazy new Marlins Park with that wacko statue and the fish floating behind home plate. You know, whether, whether you like that stadium or not visually, you know, the wackadoodle new stadium that they have in Miami, it's a different experience than them playing in what is clearly a football stadium. When they knocked down all the cookie cutter parks, it became a different experience to see a game on television it in Pittsburgh or Philadelphia from what it was before. But a I've made this point before. A strange thing has happened in the new stadium renaissance. And that is, I'm having a hard time telling some of them apart. Some of them look unique. Absolutely. Some of them truly look unique. Camden Yards looks unique. Uh... AT&T Park, uh, Petco Park in San Diego, PNC Park in uh, Pittsburgh. You, you see a game there, you know exactly where you are. The stadium that was formerly known as Enron Field, what the hell name is it now? Is it Tropicana or Minimate? It's an orange, one of the orange juice stadiums. We have beer stadiums and orange juice stadiums. Now, I'm not a big fan of that, on TV because I think it runs against the grain of what the Astros should be. I've made the point that the Astros had a persona of the team of the future. They had the stadium to match that and now they have this phony baloney nostalgic park. But I'll be honest with you. If I'm seeing a game that's played in Washington, in Cleveland, in Philadelphia, in the new St. Louis Park and the new park in Atlanta and the new park in Minnesota and to a degree Coors Field in Denver. I, 
I kind of have a hard time telling them apart. I kind of do. It's become not a cookie cutter park, but like McMansions. You know the McMansions when they have like a, a, a town like has like a, a, a little cul-de-sac and suddenly there are all these new mansions that are there, these big ostentatious houses that seem to pop up like they were like they were built like an erector set and that they're kind of like all right they're nice and fancy but you know kind of a hard time you know they, there's no real character to them and yeah they're nice and i'm sure that if you if you were at a like a little you know a tiny ranch house and you move to one of them it's like man look at this but just aesthetically there's there's not a lot of character to them and they're they just sort of seem prefabricated. And I think a lot of these stadiums are McMansions. Now, of course, the reason for the Braves to move from Turner Field was because, I mean, it, it was, it has nothing to do with whether or not Turner Field, which, by the way, is a great name for a park because Ted Turner was such a large part of the success of the Atlanta Braves. You know, they, it, it was a fine field. There's no, there's nothing wrong with Turner Field. The only thing wrong with Turner Field is it's in Atlanta. And all the money that goes on in Georgia or all these tech companies and finance companies, all these, these companies are setting up out in Alpharetta and in the suburbs. And that's where they want to put the stadium. They want to go where the money is. If there are rich people living out there, they want to put a ballpark next to there so they can have the rich money and the rich people showing up and have corporate clients go to the, the luxury boxes. That's why they're doing it. I, mean, I made the point, well, let's, let's not tear down Turner Field. Let's dig it up, drag it across the country, and put it in the parking lot of Oakland. Or maybe drag it down to, to, to Tampa and have that be the home of the Braves, but they'll need a they'll need a, a roof, so because you know, of all the rain in Florida. You know, the for most of us, for most of you, for most of everyone, the experience of a stadium will be an aesthetic one on your screen, whether it's your device, the television, whatever it is. You know, I'm not going to go to many games at Wrigley Field. I've been to one game back in 1991, and the rest of it is going to be, you know, unless I head out there again, chances are it's all going to be on TV. And so, what do I think of the new stadium? I don't know. It's the same as the old one. You know, there are other stadiums we need to fix. We need to do something with Oakland. We need to do something with Tampa. And ultimately, we need to find... I think baseball needs to expand to two more teams uh, so we don't have an interleague game playing all the time. And I think there's enough markets to support it, but there's not enough stadiums. So, you know, dismantle Turner Field and put one in Charlotte or put one in Albuquerque or put one in Portland or put one in Montreal. You know, to make it work. The fact of the matter is this. Stadiums are things we experience visually on television. And the experience of it, for most of us, is going to be somewhat abstract. And my thoughts are, a stadium, if you're going to make a new one, it better be a brand new experience. You know, I love aesthetically... That Comerica Park in Detroit bears no resemblance to Tiger Stadium. I've been to Tiger Stadium. It was old. It was a little cracked, you know, you know, rickety, but it was a great traditional filled ballpark. And they didn't try to replicate. So we're going to give you a new experience. And it's it, it is the exact opposite. You know, Tiger Stadium was enclosed. You have basically hung over the stadium. Comerica Park is wide and, and seems like this sort of, you know, wide open experience as a fan. 
And on television, it's a great aesthetic experience. I would argue that I prefer the aesthetic experience of the rounded Bush Stadium, the cookie-cutter Bush Stadium, as opposed to the new Bush Stadium. I mean, even though some great, great games have been played at the new Bush Stadium, I don't see it as any character. They went from cookie-cutter to McMansion. But the weird thing is, Atlanta already had it. Atlanta already had what I'm experiencing. My thoughts are, all right, that's... I hope you like the new neighborhood because you essentially just built your old house. I'm sure there's some quirks and bumps and bruises along the way. But sometimes there's something to be said about keeping the experience of the character of the previous stadium. I much prefer Twins games that took place in the Metrodome than than Target Field. To me, the vet felt a hell of a lot more like Philadelphia than, you know, what's the, the, I don't know, the Credit Union Park, whatever the hell, First Jersey Finances. What, What is the name of the new park they have in Philadelphia? I don't even remember what it's called. So, my thoughts are this. I don't have much. Seems like the same thing. It's like when a restaurant goes under new management and you go in, it's the same menu and the food tastes the same. So what do you think of the new place? I don't know. Tastes the same to me. As I'm doing the weekly show, uh, I try to do a little... Yeah, I'm going to have some guests on eventually, but... uh, you know, to sort of talk some of the stuff that I've been going through my head, like the, like I just did with the Christopher Austin's question about the ballparks, and I also, you know, like to keep checking off teams on the, you know, the teams that should have won, and seeing that I'm not in a position to open up the internet right now, uh, I should probably do one that I can do from memory, and. You know, I mean, a lot of people get... I'm going to do the Angels today. And I know that Angel fans... I know several Angel fans, and they, and they, they don't like when people uh, criticize their crazy name, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. They think that it's, it's hacky and everything like that. And, all right, I won't make jokes about it, but I will say this. The name, the California Angels, was such a great name. It was such a great name. It had a great ring to it, had a great rhythm to it, and, you know, with the Angels playing in Anaheim, which is not a part of L.A., it's not even part of L.A. County, and Anaheim, calling a team after Anaheim just seems kind of weird. I'm sorry, people of Anaheim. And the Orange County Angels just stop it. That's terrible. The California Angels, what you know, what it felt like, I realized after moving from New England to California what that name basically could have signified and what was I talking about just just at the top of this podcast about what most of this state is most of this state is not a city is not a beach most of the state is desert and farmlands and kind of open areas without without any big city around it. And with such an, a psychological attachment for with the Giants to San Francisco, with the Dodgers to Los Angeles, with the Oak, Oakland with the East Bay, with San Diego to uh, you know to, to <laughs> south of LA. The, the California Angels really, really could have been the team of everywhere else. They represent the rest of the state. The state that, part of the state that you don't think about. The part of the state that they don't make movies about. Part of the state that doesn't get included in the sexy montages of California. And that's kind of what I felt their, their identity kind of was and should be. I never thought of them as an L.A. team. Even when I before I moved out here, they just seemed like 
they cover the rest of the state. Now, I know they have to include Anaheim in their name because of the deal they made with the stadium. I know that the uh, ownership wants to include Los Angeles in their name so they can be, a, uh, you know, at least have the persona of a big market club. But, man, you know, we're missing out on a great name. And I just wish there was a way we could get the California Angels back. Even their best uniforms that they had. The best ones they had were the ones that they wore in the early 1990s. It was actually in one of the great collapse years, which was 1995. And their hats said CA on them. They've had CA a couple of times, where they had the great uniforms in the early, early to mid-90s with CA on them. And then when they changed the name to Anaheim, they had probably the worst uniforms they've ever, maybe anyone's ever had, including clowns. The Angels have a strange, strange history. Uh, they were the first expansion team out here. And I often wondered about Los Angeles fans and the Angels when they were formed. Because the Dodgers moved out here. The Dodgers were, look it, you can make arguments for and against them moving west uh, and you know obviously the romantic uh, has them say oh they should have stayed in Brooklyn forever uh, anyone reading anything beyond the romance of it saw they were just getting hosed by the city of New York and they got a wonderful they got a deal that anyone would have taken to come out to LA but they were clearly a team that was taken from Brooklyn. And I wonder that when the Angels were formed at the beginning of the 1961 season, if the fans who started following them were basically of a mindset that said, this is a true California team, not a team that was swiped from the East Coast. And of course, the Angels were the name of a minor league team so maybe in some people's eyes who rooted for the LA Angels of the Pacific Coast League that this was a symbolic notion of where we finally made it to the big leagues and even the team that I rooted for is a big league team. They played in Wrigley Field their first year. They shared Dodger Stadium with the Dodgers and then they moved out to Anaheim. And the Angels were took them a while to put a contender on the field. I mean, they had, I mean, they had a couple winning seasons along the way. They didn't make the playoffs until 1979. They didn't win a postseason series. Now think about this for a second. They were formed in, as I said, 1961. They did not win a postseason series of any kind until 2002. 41 years into their existence... They didn't make it. They they never had a moment where they had won a postseason series, and that was year two thousand two, where they it sure as hell looked like they're going to win one that year, as Mike Sosha mismanaged the bullpen in Game One of the division series against the Yankees, and the Angels looked like they were in the role of the well, they're just happy to be here, and then they wound up to beat the Yankees in that series, which was the first series they ever won. Then they beat Minnesota in the ALCS, and they got to the World Series, and they stunned the Giants, especially being down 5 nothing in a potential elimination game, and they won the World Series. So they went from never having won a playoff series to having a world championship, which basically in many ways has been a franchise-defining championship. I believe without a, a shadow of doubt that the fact that Sosha won the 2002 World Series has kept him his job. Because there have been some, let's just say, not so great Angels teams with very big budgets recently that without the cover of a World Series title that Mike Sosha has, I think he would have been shown the door. Now, along the way, the Angels have had some years where you're like, oh, man, if only, if only, if only. Now, 
I alluded to one of them, which is 1995. Angels had a big, huge lead, and we're just coasting to the postseason. And they looked like it with Jim Edmonds and Chili Davis and you know Mark Langston in the rotation. They looked like a team that, if they got hot in October, it was the first year there was ever going to be a division series. Or if they got hot at the right time, they may have made some serious, serious damage. But Seattle charged, came out of nowhere, and they went from being a fringe wildcard contender to tying the Angels, and the two teams were tied going in, you know, at the end of the regular season. They played a one-game playoff, which was, I believe the final score was like 9-1 to one, Seattle with Randy Johnson throwing a complete game, but it was actually a hell of a lot closer than that. It was it was a one-run game going into the seventh inning, and the bases loaded. Luis Soho hit a what was basically a double down the line. He took third on the throw. The throw got away, and he came home, so it was kind of a Little League grand slam, and that just broke the game open, and there's a, there's a wonderful shot of Mark Langston sitting on his butt Guys, he, right after trying to make the tag on Soho, on, on, uh, Soho at home plate. And he just he's sitting there in disbelief, like, I can't believe this season's flipping away. And, of course, the symbolism that Langston was a big star in Seattle and was traded, and who was the player that the Mariners got back from was Randy Johnson. And like, at that moment... There, there became no doubt that the Mariners won that trade. But there are several other years which must have been frustrating for Angels fans. I have one year in mind, and I've talked about it. But, of course, 1986, which was a year of incredible frustration for the Red Sox and for the Astros as well, Remember, the Angels were one strike away from winning the the uh, the American League pennant. And not only that, they had a 5-2 lead going into the ninth. Was it 5-2 or 5-3? Yeah, it was 5-2. That's right, it was 5-2. And Gene Mock had Mike Witt on the mound. And Mike Witt was on his way to becoming the series MVP. He pitched a complete game victory in game one was throwing a complete game in game five. Five, two lead. Don Baylor homered to make it 5-4. Mike Witz struck out the next batter, who I believe was Evans. And Gene Mock started to do one of the most amazing over-managing jobs in the history of baseball. As you had this this pitcher who the Red Sox just couldn't get. Yeah, I know he let up a home run to Baylor, but he, they were flailing at him. And yes, Rich Gedman hit a home run off of him earlier in the game, but if he hit a home run right then and there that with, for the next batter, it would have tied the game. Okay, but the chances of that happening were virtually zero. And he took out the guy who was essentially going to win the MVP of the series and brought in Gary Lucas to face Rich Gedman to clinch the pennant. And Gary Lucas hit Rich Gedman, and then Donnie Moore came in. Donnie Moore led up the home run to Dave Henderson. And what people forget about that game, and I've talked about this, what they forget about that game is that the Angels tied the game after the Henderson homer. The Henderson homer didn't clinch the game. It gave the Red Sox the lead, but the Angels tied it at the pennant at third base with one out, a deep fly ball, and the Dave Henderson homer is like the Rajay Davis homer. Like, oh, that's really, that's a great highlight, but in the end, it was on the losing cause. They couldn't get that run in off of Steve Crawford, whose ERA had an area code. And then an inning later, Gary Pettis pinned Jim Rice to the wall ball was a foot higher, it would have cleared the wall and won the pennant for them. Red Sox wound up winning and clobbered in the next two games and the Angels fell apart the next year and just, you know, kind of fell out of contention for the most part over the next bunch of years. 
And of all the the failures that could have happened, that was a truly, truly memorable one, just in terms of, you know, what it would have, you know, what it would have meant for the franchise to get to the World Series, what it have meant to Gene Mock to finally have a pennant. It was Reggie Jackson's, basically his last hurrah. A lot of, you know, veterans on that squad. That's one of the teams I was considering to put on there, but that's, that's not the team I'm picking. Nor is the team in 2009, which still had many of the players, many players left over from the 2002 championship, but also the likes of Vladdy Guerrero and Torrey Hunter, who came over to become big stars on the team. And, lest we forget, that was the year that their star young pitcher, Nick Adenhart, pitched a fantastic game at one point earlier in the season and then that night was killed by a drunk driver and the emotion behind losing this young potential star kind of loomed over the team in 2008 in 2008 the Angels had the best record in the American League 2009 they finally got off over the Red Sox hurdle and looked like they were going to match up well against the Yankees but they made a couple of boneheaded plays and in extra innings of a game which they actually had to lead in extra innings and allowed the Yankees to walk off winners. That would have been an interesting Angel team because of the effect of Vlad Guerrero, who won the MVP in 2004, is putting together a compelling Hall of Fame case. And if he had had a world championship and won in Anaheim, well, it would have made his Hall of Fame argument a lot more interesting. You know, twice the Angels had the best record in the American League and got swept in the postseason. Actually, no, let, me, let me check that. In 2008, they actually did wind up winning a game against the Red Sox in the Division Series, but they lost on a walk-off hit to Jed Lowry. In 2014, they lost two games in extra innings to the Royals at home, which means, by definition... In both of those games, the Angels were one swing of winning. They could have been up to nothing. And as of this recording, that series in 2014 was the only time Mike Trout has experienced postseason play. It will be sometime in the next couple of years that the sabermetrics community with their war will crown Mike Trout the greatest angel of all time. It's only a matter of time. He is the most talented player in the history of the team. He is halfway to the Hall of Fame at this point. He will be the greatest angel of all time. And it seems like the only year that he's going to play in October was a three, in in Anaheim at least, was a three-and-out fiasco in 2014. You know, the Angels have been blessed. Angels have been given this angel, this angel of baseball, to play on their squad and be the best player in the game. And all they have to do is put together a decent team around him where his, you know, I still don't know how to calculate wins above replacement, but the wins that he'll deliver should be enough to put them in October. And the teams that have been winning the years they've had Trout, whether it's the A's or the Astros or the Rangers, have not exactly been powerhouses. You know, it's not like they're sitting around with the Joe Torre Yankees in their division. They're the big spenders. And they can't put a winning product around the best player in baseball, which makes 2014 loom larger. But that's not the team I'm going to pick. The team I'm going to pick is a team that if they had won the World Series, and man, oh man, they had the team to do it, would have been filled with players, veterans, experienced players, to get, if not their only World Series ring, for many of them would have been their first World Series ring, 
And for one star who had a handful of rings, this would have been a great legacy moment for them. It would have been a great moment for the owner of the team, for the manager of the team, and a galaxy of stars on the team. And that was 1982. In 1982, the Angels had a team that was so star-studded that it was it was insane. They had several former MVPs on the team. Reggie Jackson was a former MVP. He was on the team. He had just left the Yankees. He had just finally said, I'm out of here, and signed the contract with the Angels, where Gene Autry, the singing cowboy who was the owner of the Angels from the beginning and fought hard to bring in an expansion franchise to Southern California, and he brought him over to Anaheim. And he brought over Reggie Jackson, who, while no longer the, the elite Reggie Jackson of Oakland, was still one of the premier sluggers in the game. He had already brought in Fred Lynn. He had already brought in Rod Carew. So there you go. There's three former MVPs right there. And you also had Don Baylor, who he had brought in. He, he won an MVP as a member of the Angels. Should he have won the MVP that year? No, but he did. So shut up. Also on that team, their big MVP candidate on the team that year was Doug DeSensei. What a spectacular season. And found a home. He was from Southern California. He's from Burbank. But he found a home with the Angels after years and years of being a, you know, being hit with the Boobirds in Baltimore because he had the effrontery of not being named Brooks Robinson. Bobby Gritch was on that team. A borderline Hall of Famer. Maybe he should have been a Hall of Famer. Now, some of these players who I just mentioned, Jackson had already won five rings, three with the A's, two with the Yankees. Okay, fine. Lynn had never won a championship and never did. Carew had never won a championship and never did. Baylor wound up winning what eventually is a member of the Minnesota Twins. Doug DeSensei's never won a championship. Bobby Gritch never won a championship. Tommy John was on that team. Can you believe Tommy John never played on a world champion? Do you know who else had a, 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 you know, there were several other players on that team, whether it was a young Mike Witt, whether it was a veteran Ken Forsh, and even a cameo appearance by uh, Louis Tiant and Rick Burleson, who was hurt and not able to play much in the series, in the, in the season, and didn't play in the postseason, but was a part of the team. Rick Burleson, former all-star for the Boston Red Sox. One of the things that became clear on that team that also featured Bob Boone, who had won a championship with the Phillies, and Tim Foley, who had won a championship with the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I'm sure I'm missing someone along the way. If I'm not mistaken, Ron Jackson was on that team. I don't think Disco Dan Ford was, but you'll have to forgive me. But right there, of all the players I just rattled off, and even like stable veterans like Steve Renko, all these players who had never won a championship, and some of them never did. One of them's in the Hall of Fame and maybe a championship on the resume of Bobby Gritch and Doug DeSensei would have made their case, I don't know, at least Gritch's case, heard by more people. If that team had won, that is the exact type of team that I'm talking about for the teams that should have won. The exact type of squad that you look at and say, like, man, that combination, that combination of players, of superstars, of beloved veterans winning a title the same time would have been a crowning moment for this franchise. And one that Mr. Autry would have a championship. Yes, his wife was alive when they won in 2002. Gene Autry, who, who was there for the building of the team, never won. Gene Mark would have had a pennant. The one thing keeping Gene Mark out of the Hall of Fame 
after all those years of being a respected manager for decades, what has kept him out is his reputation of being a guy who chokes and keeps his team out of the postseason. We saw what happened when he managed the Philadelphia Phillies in 1964, and they absolutely did one of the El Great Chocarinos in the history of baseball, blowing that, what was it, six-game lead with 10 to play or something ridiculous like that, and they blew it. A pennant in California would have been the legacy of Gene Mock, would have been the legacy of Gene Autry, would have been a trip to the World Series for Carew. And if this team had won the ring for Carew, the ring for Lynn, the ring for all of them, and what would it meant to Reggie Jackson? Yes, he had success at Anaheim. Yes, they went to the postseason twice with Reggie there, and they both got agonizingly close to the World Series. But if they went to the World Series his first year there, after having the Yankees go to the World Series and win the first year that he was in New York, and he was a World Series MVP, and then goes to Anaheim, if they had won that year, I mean, he already has the great reputation of being Mr. October, but it would have been, it would have been something metaphysical. People would have been starting to wonder if he was not from Pennsylvania, but from Krypton if he was able to deliver right out of the gate. <clears throat> and for all those players, what that would have meant, everyone I rattled off. And the team was up 2-0 back when it was a best-of-five ALCS against a Brewers team that was hobbled. They didn't have Raleigh fingers. Gorman Thomas wasn't at full strength. And the Angels had a damn all-star team. And they just had to win one freaking game on the road. And what happened? They lost all three. They had a lead in game five. And surprise, Gene Mock mismanaged the bullpen, didn't bring in the left-hander to face Cecil Cooper. Cecil Cooper sliced it to left. The tying and go-ahead runs came on board. Eventually, the Brewers pulled ahead and won the pennant. Now, would the Angels have fared well against the St. Louis Cardinals that year? I don't know the answer to that, and neither do you. But they blew their final ga three games, just like they blew the final three games in 1986, when it was a best-of-seven series. Mock, who was the manager of that year, too, never did get his ring. A lot of those players never, never, did, get the, never did get it. Crew never played in a World Series. DeSenseis and Gritch never made it back. And that team in 1982, that would have been, you know, some of the teams I point to from time to time are the ones that are loaded with so many veterans finally getting their first ring that it becomes a celebration of joy, a celebration of relief that you don't ever have to wonder, will I ever reach the pinnacle? And so many wonderful careers could have had their greatest moments then and there. And what did we had? We had a mismanaged bullpen. And what happened in both of those years, in 82 and 86, instead of redeeming what happened in Philadelphia for Gene Mock, confirmed what people suspected that he panicked, that he choked. And you may say that's unfair. You may say that decades and decades of managing should not be boiled down to how he made a couple of decisions. And you know what? You might be right. You know, and I might be crazy. But the fact of the matter is it might just be that it's a lunatic you're looking for. I cannot believe I just quoted Billy Joel. And that's kept him out of the Hall of Fame. I think about that Angels team from time to time. I make no bones about it. I'm not an Angels fan. I'm a big Mike Trout fan. I'm not an Angels fan. 
I have found myself rooting against the Angels many times. That year in, in 1982, one of my best friends was named P.J. Jurak, and he was a big Milwaukee Brewers fan. So I was rooting for the Brewers in 1982 against the Angels, even though the Angels had Freddie Lynn. In 86, with the Red Sox in the playoffs, guess which team I rooted for? I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the Mariners, especially for Ken Griffey Jr. So guess what team I rooted for in that one-game playoff between the Angels and the Mariners? The only times I can really think of that I rooted for the Angels in the postseason have been when they played the Yankees. I rooted for, you know, the two times they played the Yankees, but I rooted for the Twins in 2002. I rooted for the Giants in that year's World Series. I rooted for the White Sox in the 2005 playoffs. You know what? The one time I did root for the Angels in the postseason that wasn't against the Yankees was 2014. I was not a fan of the Royals for what they did to the A's in that one-game playoff. And I really, really was excited to see Mike Trout in the postseason. I wanted him to turn it into his postseason, um, for the lack of a better word, showcase. But that's not what happened, and here we are. So I, I can't pretend to be an Angel fan. I can't. But I am a baseball fan, and I do know the significance of a year where that many players could have and should have had their first ring. And alas, it didn't happen. And that year, 1982, was the year the California Angels should have won. It would have been a franchise-defining moment, and it would have been a career moment for so many players. So as I'm driving here in the stretch of California, decided to pay tribute to the team that at one point represented all that you can see. They came so close to bringing a title for this arid farmland. Well, if you want me to cover your team on the who owned the who I said who owned baseball cheese on the team that should have won. Shoot me a message at Twitter at Sully Baseball. You can check out the up-to-date rankings of who owns baseball, which I'm still doing, on MLBReports.com. You can go to SullyBaseball.com. You can like me on Facebook, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. Just type in Sully Baseball and you'll find me. You can be old school and send me an email at info at sullybaseball.com as always the music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski enjoying the flat and Hanna-Barbera-esque scenery of California this has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast it's not the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast damn it I'm used to saying that this is the Sully Baseball Podcast this is just Sully Baseball it's Sully Baseball that's the name of the podcast Old habits die hard. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Do you know what? You can call me Sully.